Please remain standing now for the reading of God's word or our scripture this morning. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed at this time, and we are so glad that you are here for uh, the first week of a new series, and it's called Yolf. We'll get to that, but let me start this way. How many of you want to go to heaven? Yes! Second question, how many of you want to die? Couple, couple people will actually want to, oh, no, no, you don't really, right? We didn't, no. Uh, what is it about everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there? What, what scares us about death so much? And before we launch into the series where we, we talk about heaven and, and the great things that, that we have uh, waiting for us, the first thing we need to talk about is what happens when we die. And people are scared of that. And, and why is that? Why, it, it's probably because of the unknown. If you go to Walmart and you ask people randomly what happens when we die, one out of six will just shrug their shoulders. They'll have absolutely no idea as if they've never contemplated the idea ever. Uh, a very slim majority, about 54% of people, will expect heaven to be in the mix somehow when they die. And as for the rest, about 30%, that's close to one out of three people, they will come to the closing moments of their lives without any certainty whatsoever about what to expect. Uh, the president of Union Theological Seminary, Serena Jones, was asked by a reporter, what happens when we die? She said, I don't know. There may be something. There may be nothing. Wow. That's a seminary president who knows the Bible better than you or me. If a seminary president can't know, then what chance do I have? And, and in this room, it's probably a safe bet. We just took the poll, right? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but we will die first. And that death means the unknown. It, it means the end of the only thing that we've ever known, which is life. And that's terrifying for us. We all want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. There's a guy named Clay Jones, and when he was 12 years old, he became a believer uh, after a sermon that was preached by Billy Graham on heaven and hell. Uh, he was the son of an atheist astrologer. He is a self-described uh, punk. Is that, that's what he uh, said about himself. But that day, at that Billy Graham crusade, was a turning point in his life. He was transformed. He would later go on to marry his high school sweetheart. He would become a pastor, uh, and then later a seminary professor. And then one day, a phone call came. He was having some back issues, and he had gone to the doctor about that, and the diagnosis came back that it was a type of bone cancer that kills 100% of its victims within two years. So, pause. What would you do? You get that phone call. Clay and his wife prayed first. Uh, they thanked God 
for the life that he had given him. They praised God for being in control. They asked for healing. And Clay says this. He said, it may sound strange, but I wasn't afraid of dying. People scoff at that, but it's true. And then he adds this. I had such a robust view of heaven that that's what made all the difference. He says, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he said, the worst thing that could happen would be that I graduate into God's glorious presence forever. Now, a few weeks later, it turned out that an error had been made in that diagnosis. He did have bone cancer, but it was a much milder form than they originally thought. It was very treatable. And today, he's been free of bone cancer for more than 15 years. But that experience gave him a perspective that most of us don't get when it comes to dying. And so, he wrote a book. It's called... um, immortal, how the fear of death drives us, and what we can do about it. And it will encapsulate everything that we're going to talk about today. And I want to talk about some of his ideas that he shares in that book. This fear of death does more to drive our behaviors than we absolutely know. Uh, Philosophers have known this for a while, and they've been at this game for a while. On his deathbed, Socrates said this, truly then, Those who practice philosophy aright are cultivating dying. There was an essay that was uh, entitled, To Philosophize is to Learn How to Die. And the author of that essay said that all the wisdom in the world eventually comes down to teaching us how not to be afraid of dying. There was a, a cultural anthropologist, Ernest Becker, who wrote a book in the 1970s called The Death of Denial, or the denial of death. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. And he says this, uh, that the, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity. And his, pre- his premise in the book is that everybody is terrified by their own death, and they're trying everything they can do, desperately do, to compensate for it. Now, maybe your response today is something like, I'm not afraid of dying. And that's probably not totally dishonest. Uh, because most of us, if we're honest, right, we don't think about death much. We just brush it aside. And so it's easy, maybe on a day like this, when I ask a question like that, to say, ah, it's no big deal. And that will work until you start having chest pains. And in that moment, your attitude will likely change. Scripture says something very telling about our situation. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer is speaking of Jesus uh, being able to destroy death and the power of death, and he includes this little line right at the end of his thought. He says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see what he's saying there? that we are slaves our whole lives to this inescapable end of death. We're in bondage to our fear of dying, and it affects us way more than we know. And so let's ask this. Let's pretend that we're not in a church right now, and we don't know anything about Jesus. If people don't know about Jesus, then 
who or what is going to deliver them from this kind of prison sentence that the Bible says that we are under. Uh, people desperately seek ways to escape death, and it leads to all kinds of problems. If people don't know Jesus, uh, they might dismiss death. Dismissal is a tactic. And, and I've already hinted at this once. We just kind of shove death out of our minds, or, or we say this, well, I'm the exception, right? Maybe you've had this thought. I have too. Uh, the way science is going, man, they're doing incredible things. If I can just live long enough, then surely there will be some procedure, there will be some pill, there will be some process that will cure anything that threatens my life, and Star Trek will actually become a reality, and bones will walk in with the magic little, you know, uh, injector that doesn't have any needles, and you know, and it'll be all better. No worries, right? We, we dismiss. Another tactic is distraction. We fill our days full with things that take our attention so we don't have to think about it. Sports and music and movies and activities. And so we watch the Chiefs and the Royals and KU and Netflix and Hulu and Utah, uh, YouTube and TikTok. And, and we, we got on the tennis court and we swim and we golf and we do needlepoint and we barbecue. We do all of these things and we pay people really big money if they can divert our attention just for a few more moments from the fact that we're going to die. That's a, that's a tactic. Here's a third one, depression. Um, Stax Rosh in the, in the Huffington Post wrote that the prospect of our death and the deaths of those we love is the major reason for depression. Depression is a serious problem in the greater atheist community, and far too often that depression has led to suicide. This is something that many of my fellow atheists often don't like to admit, but it's true. I want you to listen to that, what he's saying, that there's more death by suicide than ever. Why? Because people are afraid of dying. That statement doesn't make much sense. That's incongruent, right? It's counterintuitive. But suicide in that light is, is just a desperate attempt by somebody to control the monster that is controlling them. The American Journal of Psychiatry said religiously unaffiliated subjects had significantly more lifetime suicide attempts and more first-degree relatives who committed suicide than subjects who endorsed a religious affiliation. Furthermore, subjects with no religious affiliation perceived fewer reasons for living. There's a Harvard study that said attendance at religious services dramatically reduces deaths from suicide, drugs, and alcohol. Attending services at least once a week cut these so-called deaths by despair by 33% among men and a whopping 68% among women compared to those who never attended services. In our country, we talk about an epidemic of suicide, and it does exist. But the real revelation for us is why that epidemic exists, because there's another epidemic that leads to that epidemic, and it's this increasing rejection of what Clay Jones calls a robust belief in an afterlife. If this life is all there is, it means no hope, and suicide is just one very predictable expression of hopelessness. And so humans do everything that they can do to escape death. Why is that? Why this constant struggle? Scripture tells us exactly why. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says this, right in the middle. God has 
put. It means planted. He's planted eternity, which means forever. He's planted forever inside the human heart. The picture is that we are confined to a prison cell of this life, and yet at the very same time, we know instinctively, we know inside our heart that we weren't made for the cell. We were made for the world outside of it, even though we've never seen it. That's what the scripture is telling us. Ecclesiastes is telling us that there's more than just a fear of death at play when we talk about this subject. There's also implanted in us an expectation that there is something beyond this life. Living on after death is built into our very design. We know we are forever. We are eternal. So, so watch this. Watch. Even those who don't, don't recognize God have this instinct built into their lives. They need to outlive their lives. They know that. Isn't that interesting? If we're all products of random accidents that with no point or purpose, then there's no reason for this incessant drive to outlive ourselves. The highest contentment in that scenario should be found in death, but it's not. It's not. Not by a long shot. Everybody wants to live on, right? Every person who's ever lived has thought, how do I keep this going? I kind of like life. Life is something that I don't think should end. It should last forever. That's what everybody thinks. Everybody has it implanted in them. And so every time you sit in a funeral service, you think about that. You understand, you know that instinctively. This is not the way it should be. God put that there. So even those who don't acknowledge God find themselves playing by this rule, and everyone is driven instinctively to find ways to live, even though they know they will die. And people find all kinds of ways. Clay Jones, in his book, gives us several ways that people deal with death. I've renamed them for our purposes this morning. Uh, so the first way that people try to to deal with death is to cheat it. Let's cheat it. Let's find a way to live longer. And one of the most popular ways is to get fit. Let's get fit, right? Let's eat organic, uh, non-GMO, no seed oils. Let's not eat anything but plants, or let's not eat anything but meat, or let's only eat for four hours a day. And all of this healthier, Activity is to avoid disease. Now, all of those things are great things, right? Uh, it, they, if we're healthier, we can live life to the fullest extent. Uh, you shouldn't be against any getting fit. But understand, all of the exercise, all of the gluten-free, all of the no, no hormone life that you can muster won't stop the grave. It won't. Let's say today that we could wave a magic wand and all of cancer would be gone. Cancer is instantly cured. Do you know what that would mean for the average lifespan? It would mean an extra 2.265 years for the average person. That's 27 months. If cancer's gone, you only live 27 months longer. An astute Harvard demographer said, it doesn't matter, you'll die of something else. And that got me thinking, the average TikTok time 
uh, per day is about 52 minutes. You know what that is over a 70-year lifespan? That's 2.52 years. That's two and a half years. That's more than if we cured all of cancer that TikTok is stealing from you. Maybe it's possible that if we're worried about something stealing our life, we should look to TikTok and not cancer. Maybe. Maybe we live longer by transhumanism. Uh, really, really smart people are saying that even by 2050, that we ought to be able to download our mind into a machine so that when we die, it's not a major career problem. <laughs> we, we can go on. Elon Musk is already uh, experimenting with this. He's implanting computer chips into the brains of monkeys. Um, but emulating a brain with computer chips isn't the same as actually making a brain. The human brain is so complex that even if artificial intelligence did all of the work, it would take a thousand years to map the human brain. And then after you do that, you still have the problem of consciousness. Scientists still can't explain how non-conscious stuff becomes conscious. It's not your brain matter that is really you, is it? It's the consciousness within your brain matter that makes you, you, and provides you an identity. And so maybe someday we do get to the point where we can upload ourselves, but it won't be us. That's the point. How about cryonics? Maybe we can live longer by freezing ourselves. That's the idea that uh, the body is instantly frozen when death comes so they can be thawed out later down the line when science has figured out um, cures for everything. Ted Williams was a famous baseball player, was cryogenically frozen. Larry King, Seth MacFarlane, Peter Thiel, the creator of PayPal, they all want to be uh, cryonically frozen. Larry King said the only hope, the only fragment of hope is to be frozen. Walt Disney was actually not frozen. That's, that's kind of a myth. He was actually buried very normally in Glendale, California in 1966. Uh, but what about this idea? First, l l the logistics are insane. You, you have to be in frozen just at the right moment within, within even a couple of minutes of dying or it won't work. The brain starts to deteriorate and that's not real practical. Good luck figuring those logistics out. The biggest hurdle though is something called fracturing. If I had a glass of ice and I had a can of soda and I poured that soda over the ice, what would you hear? You would hear shh and you'd hear that ice cracking. That's fracturing. And nobody has figured out a way to thaw a brain or thaw a body without that crack, crack, crack. And once it's cracked, there's really no gluing it back together. Nobody's solved fracturing. And with all of this, there is a cosmic a cosmically ordained foundational problem with just finding a way to live longer. And that's what God tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. He says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die. No matter how much we try to paddle against its current, at some point death will overpower us, and God has ordained that for your life and for my life. Eternity will come Regardless, we will die, and so the big question is, where will we spend eternity when it comes? Here's another way to deal with death. We dent it. We put a dent in it, right? We find a way to leave a legacy. We make some impact on this life 
so that even after this life is over, we will live on. And there are several ways that people would propose that we do this. Uh, the most, the simplest way for most of us is to have kids, have kids, right? Uh, one guy said, children are the only form of immortality that we can be sure of because we pass our, our genes on in our kids. The math doesn't work, though. In just 20 generations, your future offspring will have only 0.000004 of your genes at absolute best. That doesn't really sound immortal, right? But okay, maybe we're not talking about physically, we're just talking about memory, right? Our memory will live on in the memory of our kids. We will live on in their memory. Uh, let's try that one on for size. If you can, very easily, I'd like you to, just to stand up. I want everybody to stand up. And uh, I want to ask you a question. And we're going to begin with this question. If you can name your grandparents, then stay standing. If you don't know the names of your grandparents, then sit down. First names will do. Okay? All right? Lots of people know the names of their grandparents. Good deal. Let's go here. Great grandparents. If you know the names of your great-grandparents, stay standing. Everybody else sit down. Uh, that knocked a few of you out. Let's do one more. If you know, first name will do. How many of you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? If you do, stay standing. If you don't, sit down. Now, we have eliminated most people, all right? Uh, here's the million-dollar question. Do you, you're, what are the names? What are, what are the names? His name? Fred? George? Annie? Lou? Adoit? Iris? Man. Okay. I'm still not getting it, Dan. I'm sorry. So here's the, here's the question. Here's the million dollar question. Even if you know their name, do you care? <laughs> right? Do you care where they worked? Do you care what shoe size they, they were? Do you care uh, what their favorite food was? Are they keeping you up at night? Would the answer be no? Give them a hand. Everybody can sit down now. Good job. Good job. What that little experiment means for all of us is this, that it, all it will take is for that first great-great-grandkid to come down the line, uh, probably just a decade or two after you kick the bucket, and you will be completely forgotten about. Those great-great-grandkids, even if they learn your name, they won't care. And so... So much for trying to keep yourself alive through your family. And that's, guess what, probably your best hope. <laughs> Here's something else we can do. We could create something, right? We could make something that will last. We could paint. We could write. We could build. We could sculpt. We could record. We could accumulate. We, we could participate in something that is of lasting worth that will transcend our death. That's the idea. And that was the, the uh, thought behind the Palace of Versailles in France, King Louis XIV uh, set about to build the largest palace in the world, and he did. It has 2,300 rooms. Just the, just the building has 72 
100,000 square feet. There's 2,000 acres of living space, indoor living space. The gardens are 30,000 acres and are home to 400 sculptures, 1,400 fountains. Uh, Kansas City is called the city of fountains. You know how many fountains are in Kansas City? About 200. House of Versailles, 1,400 fountains. And King Louis built this structure to secure his name in history. To, to him, the most precious thing on earth was his fame. He wanted it to continue. Now, the problem is that most of us aren't a 17th century king, right? Even the little things that we can put our name on uh, that are significant accomplishments, they, they won't last. They might be in our obituary. Uh, he ran for mayor, or she broke the world record for sneezing, or he was the first to traverse the Marmonton River on ice skates. Uh, all of those accomplishments will be very interesting, right? Uh, but they will just be footnotes that nobody will ever read. A long time ago, Andy Warhol said this, that everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And then a, just a few years ago, a commercial was made that said, somebody once said that everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Do you see what they did? They removed Warhol's name from his quote, and even that fame didn't last for him. To some, to leave a legacy, maybe we could make a name for ourselves. I was listening to a podcast last week by uh, Michael Saylor. He was being interviewed. Uh, he's the CEO of MicroStrategy. He's an MIT grad. He's one of the largest holders of Bitcoin in the world. And the host asked him what he would do with his wealth when he died. And he, he said, well, I've already started this. He, he actually has put together an online academy named Sailor Academy. It's an online platform where anyone can take college courses for, for absolutely free. And he wants to continue that. Uh, Carnegie built libraries. Michael Saylor wants to make education free for all forever. That's his goal. And if he succeeds in that, then his name will probably be around for a while. We want to make a name. Even a bad name will do for some people. The guy that killed John Lennon, I won't say his name because that will give him the attention that he wants, but he was asked why he did it. And he said, I did it to get attention and to steal John Lennon's fame. When he was in front of his parole board, he said of the moment, that bright light of fame, of infamy, of notoriety was there and I could not resist it. The Columbine High School killers just before they carried out their tragedy, they had a discussion about what famous movie director would make a movie about them. When people have no God to hold them accountable and no afterlife to look forward to, then why not go out in a blaze of glory and just make a name for yourself? The problem, of course, is that you're still dead. It's all symbolic immortality. It doesn't really mean a thing. Marcus Aurelius, uh, super wise, he said, what is the advantage of having one's own name on the lips of future generations when their overriding concern will be the same as ours? To have their names on the lips 
of their successors. How does that confer any reality on us? Notoriety fades pretty quickly. There are a couple more ways to deal with death that Jones gives us, and the third is to accept it. Just find a way to lean into the circle of life. It's the approach that says, maybe death isn't so bad after all. I actually ran into an article just yesterday. It was entitled, Why You Don't Want to Live Forever. The idea is that maybe death is a blessing in disguise, because won't living forever just get boring anyway? Won't we run out of things to do? And so dying is actually better. That's crazy. Or this, dying just creates room for others. The circle of life, right? It's a Lion King approach. Steve Jobs said this, death is very likely the single best invention of life because it clears out the old to make way for the new. The problem is that that idea bumps up against this longing for eternity that God has put into every heart. He's implanted in us. And this idea is not livable. If it was, we would embrace this lion of death. But as it is, we fend it off with a stick. And it's hardly a comforting thought that we would just be fertilizer for someone else. Here's the fourth way. Reject it. Reject it. Find a way to live a lie. There's a popular inscription on ancient Roman tombstones, and it's this, non fui, fui, non sum, non curo. And when you translate that, it's translated, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. And that phrase sums up, if there is such a thing as the gospel of atheism, that, 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 it's right there. The gospel of atheism says this, then there will be nothing. Nothing. Sam Harris says, there's nothing to worry about, there's nothing to fear. When after you die, you are returned to that nothingness that you were before you were born. Death, therefore, is not a problem. Life is the problem. And the idea goes like this. Do you remember the time before you were born? Of course you don't. And and that's why it was nothingness And that nothingness is what you're going to return to. And so there's nothing to fear, and it's not a problem. I want to play a little game, another one. We've already played a a game today. Uh, Let's say that somebody was willing to give you $10 million, and all you have to do is return to the mental capacity of a contented baby. That, That one looks really good, right? What do you do? I don't think anybody would take that, that deal. What will $10 million do for you when all it takes to make you happy is a dry diaper and a full stomach and a KU national championship, right? Uh, The problem is it doesn't work. The, the The atheist gospel of nothingness says you should be fine returning to that because you were fine when you were that, but it's a lie. It doesn't work. The problem, of course, is what you're deprived of. You don't want to be deprived of your mental faculties that have grown since then, your physical abilities that are way more improved than when you were an infant, right? And it's the same with death. It cannot be nothingness and harmless. Why? Because life is everything. It's what we cling to. 
And if life is everything and then we lose the one thing that is everything to us, then that is the greatest loss imaginable. Now, here's the greater problem. This idea of nothingness after life ends, ends assumes that Christianity must be false. Christianity is 180 degrees from the idea of nothingness. Christianity teaches that when we die, there is not nothing. There's exactly the opposite of nothing. There's reward. There is judgment. There's heaven. There's hell. There are eternal consequences for everything that we've done in this life. And the lie that you're invited to under this idea is to embrace nothing. But nothing is not what God says. Nothing is not what Jesus proves by walking out of a tomb. Nothing is not what the apostles testify to. And this is the amazing thing. We'll talk about this next week. Nothing is not even what the best science is telling us. Now, I want you to pause, and I want you to stand back, and I want you to look at all of that. Ways to deal with death. We can cheat it. We can dent it. We can accept it. We can reject it. All of those are techniques that people have come up with in order to somehow deal with death. Maybe you're like me and somewhere along the way you've heard somebody say that Christianity is just a crutch. It's just a made-up story that people who buy into it have so that they have a way to escape their fear of death. That's all Christianity is. It's just a, a crutch. God and Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, it's just an invented nonsense to help us get through the day with a, without utter hopelessness. It's a crutch. I want you to take another look at those. Cheat it, dent it, accept it, reject it. If Christianity is a crutch, are not all of those the same thing? I want you to look at all the nonsense that skeptics of God have to embrace to cope with their own fears of death. And so maybe the best question is not whether Christianity or any of these things are crushes at all, because I think they all are. The resurrection helps me get through the day. It's absolutely a crutch. It's a crutch that I want. It helps me walk through life with hope instead of despair. It, it is a crutch. That's not the issue. The issue is which crutch is true. In week three of this series, we're going to talk about a pyramid of thought that we can construct that will point to Christianity being the truest option that we have in this life. But today, the point is this. Why do human beings strive or worry or fuss over after what is after this life? Why do we look up in the sky and say, what else is there? It's because the worst thing that can happen to a person is to be forgotten. That's what this struggle is all about. How do I get through life and even beyond this life without being forgotten? That's our question that we ask. And that's why we ask all of these questions about death itself. Because no one wants to be forgotten. No one wants to be forgotten from a list of people who are invited to a party. No one wants to be forgotten on payday. No one wants to be forgotten on Valentine's Day or on their birthday. No one wants to be forgotten by someone they love. No one wants to be forgotten by someone they respect. No one wants to be forgotten when gifts are being handed out. 
No one wants to be the kid who is forgotten, waiting on the steps or at the door long after all of the other kids have been picked up. One of the worst things ever is to be forgotten. Here's the wisdom of our day. YOLO, you only live once. Make the most of this life because this life is all you get. Now, as we go along, we're going to use this, this term quite frequently, and I want you to know that YOLO, this term, isn't evil, okay? To some extent, even believers can benefit from this urgency that comes from knowing that you only have one life to live, okay? So YOLO is not evil, but YOLO captures very well the outlook of our current generation, and it is this, live it up, suck all that you can out of this life, because when this life is done, that's it. Atheism says that after this comes nothing, and nothing means nothing, and nothing also means no one. There will be no one who remembers you or anything you do. YOLO means you will be forgotten. And if YOLO is the best descriptor for atheism, then Christianity would say, not YOLO, but y'all. You actually live forever. Atheism means nothing. And if that's true, then Christianity means more. More. Christianity says there's more life after this life. Living in God's presence is more life. Living with God's people is more life. There are more relationships than ever as we reunite with loved ones and people we lost track of and people we've lost. There's, There's not nothing There's more, more physicalness than ever. This world will be redeemed and renewed and restored. If anything in this life is beautiful or amazing on this earth, it's more of that in heaven, infinitely more. There's more beauty, there's more joy, more love, more contentment, more purpose, more satisfaction, more enjoyment, more pleasure, more rest, more cake more happiness than ever. Christianity says more. Why? Because with YOLO life ends and there's nothing and you will be forgotten. But with y'all, there's more because you are never forgotten. When Jesus was on this earth and when he prayed, he always called God Father. It wasn't an intuitive thing to do that. Nobody had prayed that way before Jesus, but he always does. He always says, Father, God, when he prays. He calls God Father, and it communicated that Jesus was known fully by God, that he was loved as a son. And there's, there's only one time, there's only one time that we can point to where Jesus prays and he does not call God Father. It's when he's hanging on a cross and the closeness and love that he's always felt with the Father is no longer there. Jesus knows that the Father has turned his back on him because of all of the sin of all mankind that he is bearing in his body and the Father can't be close to that sin and so he turns away and Jesus, what does he pray? My God, my God, not Father, why have you forsaken me? Or we could say it this way, why have you forgotten me? The worst thing ever is to be forgotten. 
Jesus lost his relationship with the Father so that we could have one. Jesus was forgotten by God so that we could be remembered by him forever. Yalf means that God will remember your name even if everyone else forgets it. Even if you do nothing worth remembering, God will be there for you. He will never forget you. That's what Jesus has won for you on the cross. This thing inside of us that looks at a funeral procession and says, that's not the way it should be. We need to listen to that. That voice embedded in our heart is eternity talking. That's the foreverness that God has put in your heart that you want to live on. And it's Jesus, the Savior of the world, that makes it possible to do so. Do you know Jesus today? Don't forget it. He can't save you. He can't help you if you forget him. Forget everything else but him. And you'll end up after this life, not with nothing, but with everything. That's the promise. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. You can claim that promise today. I hope you will.